Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. He has years of experience as a pastor, seminary instructor, and more. Later, you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Book of James, because in my own study, began looking at this and studying some things and what I've learned or been reminded of has just been amazing. I think it's kind of contagious. It's contagious in a good way. It's contagious in that it will draw you back to a life of faith. It will draw you to a life that sees the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the book of James is a book of faith. And faith without works cannot be called faith. Faith without works is dead, he says. And dead faith is worse than no faith at all. Faith must work. It must produce. It must be visible. Verbal faith isn't enough. Mental faith is insufficient. Faith must be there, but there's got to be more. It must inspire action. And in this epistle, written to Jewish believers, James integrates what true faith is in everyday practical experience by stressing that true faith manifests itself in the works of faith. Faith endures trials. Trials come and go, but strong faith will face them head on and develop that endurance that we need in this day and age. Faith endures and understands temptations. It will not allow us to give into a lust and slide into sin. Faith obeys the word. It will not merely hear and not do. Faith produces doers. Faith harbors no prejudice. It will not merely hear and not do. Faith and favoritism cannot coexist. Faith displays itself more and more, not in words. It's more than just knowledge. It's demonstrated by our obedience. And it responds. It responds positively to the promises of God. Faith controls the tongue. The small but immensely powerful part of the body has to be held in check. Faith can do that. Faith acts wisely. It gives us the ability to choose wisdom that is heavenly and to shun the wisdom that's earthly. It gives us that separation from the world and helps us in our submission to God. It provides us the ability to resist the devil and to humbly draw near to God. Finally, faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. And through all the trouble and trials, faith stifles complaining. That's just a token of what we find of faith in this book. That's just kind of a a little 
glimpse of what we're going to see. So as we begin to study these five wonderful chapters, this little epistle, it has so much that's practical, that's life-changing. There's life-changing truth in it. And we're going to just be dealing with the first verse today, just verse 1. I hope that we can set the scene and understand something about James and understanding who he is writing to, the personality of James, and the features that caused him to write such an important letter. But let me begin by saying that something that is genuine is tested. You know, we live in the gold country. Those early gold miners, they had assayers. They would take their their gold and they would take it to an assayer to see, is this genuine? Is this real? Well, you know, the Bible gives us many tests to see if our salvation is real. That we can look at it, we can evaluate it. And there's so much, because whether it's gold or silver, precious minerals, diamonds, whatever it might be, precious stones, everything has that ability to be subjected to testing to make sure that it's true. The most valuable thing of this world and of this life is eternal salvation. It's priceless. It has the highest of value. And so that right relationship with a living God helps us to know that we are going in the right direction, that we're marching in the right way. So hopefully this will help us as we look at some of these tests very quickly. We're going to look at a few of the tests that will help us examine our daily life and determine if we are in the faith and we are living a life of faith. We can consider the book of James as kind of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Because there are very real, very significant similarities that James refers to from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And all through the book of James, we will find references. And so we'll get to go back and forth. So I hope that as we study this, you will see that and you'll understand and you get the feeling, the undertone of how he makes the Sermon on the Mount very practical. Jesus is almost the primary teacher of the book of James. James articulates Jesus' lessons. And in many ways then, James is just a practical commentary of what Jesus taught, of the applications from that sermon. And his goal, of course, is the same as Jesus, but it was to convince the audience that their religion and their religious profession their religious activities were not going to benefit them unless there was true godliness in the heart, unless their hearts had been changed and they had trusted Christ. So that's what James is after. And it's my belief that in the whole epistle, James is nothing but a series of tests for the genuineness of our salvation. I'm going to demonstrate that as we go through here. That we will see that James wants you to know that your faith is genuine, that your faith is strong, that it is based in the right thing. And he wants us to see the character of living faith that's true and genuine. And wasn't that Jesus' concern? Isn't that what Jesus wanted, that people would have true faith? And that's James' concern. And I want to remind you for a moment, in 1 John, we find in 1 John 1, 6-9, I think it's very familiar to you, some of this idea that I'm talking about of testing the genuineness of our salvation, if our faith was really valid, 
He gives in there the indication that if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Do you see the the test there? That's why John gives us that test. We went through just uh, recently in Peter. And we looked at what faith was and adding to your faith virtue and all of those things and how that we're adding and testing our lives and looking at that. Because what John is saying here in 1 John, as well as what we're going to find in James, if we are just sayers and not doers, you see, if we are sayers and then if we are doers, if you will do His will. And that's where he's going. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. If you say you have fellowship, but you're walking in darkness, you're living with the world, John's very clear, you lie. That's the way it is. How a person is related to allowing sin is an indicator of the genuineness or the lack of it regarding their salvation. Now, it is true that a child of God can go off into sin, but they have to look at and apply the test. That's the essential teaching of 1 John. That series of tests by which you examine yourself to see where you are in genuine salvation and where you are in your life of faith. Now, I want you to understand all of that as it goes back as Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He said that there will be those that come to Him in the judgment and say to Him, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things? Haven't we cast out demons and haven't we prophesied? And it goes on and He explains all the different things that they did. And Jesus replied to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They never applied the test to see if their salvation was genuine. They never applied the test that we find here in the book of James and we find in the book of John. They have an illusion of being saved. And you could go through 1 John and see test after test. And that's what we said in 2 Peter chapter 1 as we went through some of that. That they were blind. If you remember as we went through 2 Peter chapter 1. As we went through that, we saw that they were blind and they had forgotten they had been purged from their old sins. In other words, you'll know you're saved when you see that pattern of faith in your life. That's where I want us to be. That's where I want us, that we are always reaching out. That we're seeing our faith in action. After all, Remember, I hope the motto of this church is that we're reaching people and teaching people. That we're reaching out because people need Christ Jesus as every day, but I think even more so in this day and age. If nothing else, we're living in the last days. We're living in those days that we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. We need to be reaching people and teaching people. Hi. Let me interrupt very quickly to let you know and update you with some information. You can contact us at 
schoolofministryresources.org, all runs together, or contact me personally at paul at landmarkstockton.com. We also have online services on Facebook at Landmark Stockton that all runs together. Or if you're interested in our church history sessions, you can look on YouTube under Landmark Stockton, two separate words in that place. We'd love to send you information, and we're always so glad to hear from our listeners. So please feel free to contact us, and we'll write back to you. Thank you. Now back to our podcast. So let's pick up on some of the notes that James tells us. You know, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says something I think we're familiar with. But be ye, what? Doers of the word. That's right. Be ye doers of the word. And not, what? Not hearers only. Do you see how practical that is? Do it. Because if you're a hearer only and you're doing what? Then you're deceiving yourselves. It goes on. Talks about that. Chapter 2 verse 13. He says, He shall receive judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. In other words, if we're going to be judged without mercy if in your life you do not demonstrate mercy. So that was the indicator that if you possess no mercy that was granted by God, then obviously we need to be looking at some things in our lives. Verse 17 says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's useless. Verse 20, Faith without works is dead. Verse 26, Faith without works is dead. Three times. When the Word of God, when the Holy Spirit inspires something over and over, He wants to get our attention. He wants us to recognize something. Faith without works is dead. It doesn't matter what you claim. It doesn't matter what you perform on the outside. The absence of truly righteous deeds betrays an unredeemed heart or a backslidden heart if we've gone away. Chapter 3, verse 13 who is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good life his works with meekness and wisdom. Let him show it. Let it be manifest in the way that he lives. Chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There's another test. Worldliness sounds almost like this parallel passage in 1 John 2, 15. You're familiar with it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then in verse 8, he calls for an invitation of the people that fail the test and says, Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So people holding on to the world, but also wanting to have a form of religion. You see, James wants the reader to put his faith to the test. I think that's what we're going to find in this book. We're going to be testing it, looking at it. Now, it's kind of curious to me as we think about all these introductory things. It's curious that James does not deal with the essence of salvation. He doesn't talk about there's nothing about the crucifixion, let me just say. There's nothing about the resurrection. There's nothing about the deity of Christ, about justification. There's nothing about regeneration. These things aren't mentioned, but they are assumed. And I'll show you why. It's very clear. Because in verse 
chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, my brethren. He's assuming it. He's assuming. After all, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And then he says, my brethren. It's assumed. Here it is. He doesn't have to go in and doesn't have to clarify any of those things. He says, they're brethren, not only in race, but in the faith. They are brethren as he calls them in chapter 2, he calls them my brethren. He calls them brethren in the beginning of chapter 3. He calls them brethren several times. He even calls them beloved brethren. So the underlying assumption here is that we have a people who claim faith in Jesus Christ. They've already been saved. He doesn't explain what it is to become a Christian because he assumes that they're already children of God. The readers already have that knowledge. But what James is saying is it won't benefit you eternally unless there's clear evidence of your salvation that it's the real thing. James desires to show character of living faith. One writer put it this way, I like that his chief aim is plainly to impress the readers with a conviction that true Christianity is always a great moral power and will therefore reveal itself through growth in the energies and the beauties of holiness. Saving faith always flows out of good works. Some people have said, well, James is in conflict with Paul, but not at all. To Paul, the question was this. How is salvation received? In the book of Romans, Paul goes on and he asks that question and he answers it. How can you be saved? How can you know these things? How is salvation received? Paul's answer is it's always by faith alone through grace. The question is now in James, how is my salvation verified? How do I know? And his answer is always the same, by works alone. It's received by faith and it's verified by my life. There's no conflict there. They're in perfect harmony. And it's a beautiful book. And now with that understanding, as we look at the overall view, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. That's verse 1. James, I'm going to break this down word by word. You'll be so glad to know in all of my study how many pages I took out. <laughs> how many pages we did away with. Because the name James of Yekobo was the original of the Greek. It's really the word Jacob. James is the same as Jacob. And this was common in the first century Palestine. And eventually it came to James in the English because it lost its original identity in the translation in Latin. And that's how it's come to be James here. So in other words, uh, Yekobo became Yekobos and Yekobos became Yekomas. And then that English transliteration of Yekomas became James. So... What started up as Jacob ended as James. So we ask the question then, who is this James? Who's the writer here? And all it says that a James, it doesn't give any other description. 
It just says that he is a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That could be a whole lot of different James. There are four James mentioned in the New Testament, but really only two that are good possibilities. James, probably the most familiar one, is the son of Zebedee. James and John. You remember Jesus called them from their fishing boats, said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come after me. Jesus also, they were known as Boandaries, sons of thunder. (laughs) Remember, they were the ones that said, hey, these people aren't following us. Should we call fire down from heaven and get them? (laughs) They were sons of thunder, volatile men, men of great excitement, intensity. And we know about that James. He was one of the twelve. We know about more about him that he was in that inner three of Peter, James, and John. We know that he was martyred because he was a fisherman in Acts chapter 12. We'll look at that in a moment. Acts chapter 12 verse 2 talks about his martyrdom. First, Stephen is martyred in chapter 8 of the book of Acts. James is the first apostle that is martyred. And it's interesting to me that in the New Testament, he never appears apart from his brother John, except in his death. Only in his death are they mentioned separately. So in Acts chapter 12, because it's so early, it's very unlikely that he was the writer of this book. However, the book of James is the earliest book written in the New Testament. It was the first New Testament book. And in the Gospel of John, he is always there. Now, because he's he's always with John, except as he is giving his life, he would have been in glory for a long time by the time this book was written. So that leaves us really with only one other good possibility. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when our Lord came into the world, remember, Mary was a virgin. But after the birth of Christ, she went on with her husband, Joseph, and bore other children, male and female. And one of those, and I think he's probably most likely the eldest son after Jesus, was named James. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. If you want to hear Paul in person and are in the Stockton, California area, We invite you to join us at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church, 301 East Alpine Avenue. That's near the University of the Pacific. He brings the Bible message every Sunday at 11 a.m. and other times as listed. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.